Blog Talk Radio.
uh, shot to rifle standards. If you've got somebody that passed a PC uh, or gotten their red hat or their green hat or a blue hat uh, or they've done a, a great job in promotions or helping set up the events, etc., anything like that. Or if you just want to say thanks to folks who have just been doing their job uh, and it's been a big help to you, then, then take the time to call in and you know, let the folks, let the people that are listening hear that. You can do that by calling 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. That's our, uh, that's our call-in number. we got uh, 50 lines waiting for you to call in. And uh, we also want to, uh, we also, if you have a, a commercial endeavor, or that you're trying to get going or something, we'd like to uh we'd like to mention you on the radio show. Uh, we want to support our fellow apple seeders and everything that they do. And and if we can purchase something from them that uh that will that will that we need anyway, then why not buy it from our fellow apple seeder? All right? Uh, I'm testing out uh, a new product this week from uh, from Desert Eagle, from uh, Jimmy in New Mexico, and uh, and let me see. We've got uh, we've got the uh, handmade soap from. Blue Feather and Tiles Clock. I'm trying to do two things at once here. I'm trying to to read and, and type and talk. Uh, you can almost always tell when uh, uh, you know when I do that. All right. Uh, he sent me uh, a device for uh, for determining your uh, distance. And uh, it's a like a it's a a, a mill dot. I, I, I meant to make sure I had the name of it before it came on, but but I don't. I forgot the name of it, and it's sitting in the other room, so I can't get it and go get it. <clears throat> you know, it's a very handy device. And uh, what you do is you uh, you use the known size of something at a certain distance, and you plug that into. The, uh, the calculations, and it'll tell you what your distance is. Like if you have, a, say you have a stop sign, and you know that that is uh, uh, 24 inches wide, or you have a uh, a deer's body, you know how wide that is. And then you take uh, the the, uh, the the increments in your scope, and you measure it with your scope, and then you plug this into the calculator, and it'll tell you the distance you are from it. It also has a bullet drop calculator and stuff uh, with it. And it has a nice uh, instruction manual. And I believe that uh, Jimmy said these were going for 30 something dollars plus. And if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, uh, he said that uh he will give the apple seeders uh $5 off on the uh on the mill dot calculator. So, and this is a pretty neat thing, Ray, and I haven't had a lot of time to work with it because I just 
got it. But uh, uh, if you do a lot of shooting, especially for you guys that are that are hunting and stuff like that, uh, it seems like it's very handy because. Uh, okay, hold on. I got the information here now. Okay. This is called the Mill Dot Calculator. And uh, Jimmy's got, he's a dealer for this now. And uh, he says he will give you the, the like I said, they usually go for $30 plus. He said he'll send it to you for 20 or you said you, uh, he'll sell it to you for $25 plus the postage to where you are. So you got five bucks. So that's, uh, uh, that uh, is almost like uh, getting it for, uh, I don't know, it can't cost that much to ship it, a buck and a half maybe. Uh, so you're going to save uh, a good bit on that by getting it from him and support a fellow apple seeder. Uh, and I'll do some more work with it, and then I'll let you know, uh, uh, I'll give you some more details on it, but it's a very uh, mill dot master, I call screener, uh, has just informed me it's the mill dot master. Because he got one too, and uh, he's trying his out too. I'm pretty sure. And uh, uh, it's a very handy uh, device. It even has the it gives you the ability to uh, to calculate the distances and shots and stuff on uh, when you're shooting at elevation, up or down. Uh, it's got a nifty little thing where you can uh, you can like hang it by its one corner, and then uh, I mean, uh, you put a uh, a string in the one corner of it, and then you point uh, the the uh, it's like a slide rule. Point it at the same elevation of, of that you're shooting. That would give you the the angle that your shot's going to be at. Take the angle, plug it in, and get your information that way. So it's a very handy little device uh, for you to uh, for you to have in your gear, and it's. Uh, Probably about the size of, uh, oh, maybe it's the size of two of the old floppy disks set side by side, and about that thick. So uh, it doesn't take up a lot of space, <clears throat> and especially if you're going to be consistently making uh, uh, long shots or shots out of distance and, uh, and it's like in field shooting so that you're not, uh, you don't already have markers out there for your distance, et cetera. All right. Uh, so once again, that uh, it's a Mill Dot Master, and you can get it from uh, Jimmy at Desert, Desert Eagle Farms. And Jimmy also uh, uh, will provide you with uh, long-term food. He's got that there at his uh, his place too. And don't forget to keep Jimmy in your prayers. His daughter uh, has been ill, and we would like to uh, for those of you folks that are praying, folks. And uh, I'm certainly one of those. Then remember to keep Jimmy in your prayers. Keep him and his daughter and the family in your prayers. All right. Uh, so if you have a product that you would like us to mention on the air, and I'm doing this for free, Block Talk. I'm not getting any money from anybody. Uh, I got a Mill Dot Master without paying for it from Jimmy, but that was just so I could try it out and talk about it on the air. <clears throat> so I'm not, uh, I'm not scamming you guys out of any money. And uh, we'll be glad to do the same for any of the rest of you guys that call in. If you want to call in and uh, and get on the air and put out uh, some product you have, we'll be glad to give you the time to do that. But uh, we'd like for you to call in and tell your local crews thanks. I want to tell 
uh, two wolves in Fredericksburg. Uh, Roger Glenn, uh, thank you for the work that he does out there. He does a great job in Fredericksburg. Uh, he does the setting up and the uh, and a, a lot of promo uh, for uh, for the project. And uh, just a heck of a guy. He's a really good guy, a really good friend. And uh, we went. To, uh, we all went to the Dallas Expo together to uh, do the Appleseed uh, push there. And, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned it. Uh, maybe I only mentioned it uh, on the advisory board or somewhere on the forum that uh, we hadn't got any calls back or we hadn't got any returns on the folks who'd come. But now I've got to, uh, I've got to change that because it appears we've gotten, uh, well, I've had like, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people, seven people from that I spoke to at the expo. And maybe I spoke to 20 people all together. But seven people from the expo have decided to come to the apple feed. So that's about a 40% return, which is pretty dang high. I've talked to any of the rest of the guys and seen if they've gotten, uh, if anybody else has had any returns from it. Or I haven't talked to a rifleman to see if she has had anybody mention it. But I know that I've had seven people call me and ask to come to the event. So, <clears throat> so that is, uh, that's great. And, Roger was there with us, and uh, he also bought uh, a bunch of copies of uh, Mark Levin's new book called uh, Meritopia, and sent them to uh, all the instructors that were up there, and uh, we're all reading the book, and then with the only stipulation that once we read it, we sign it and date it, and then we send it off to uh, the next person, somebody who's going to read it. They're going to sign it and date it, and they're going to send it off. And... uh, I encourage you to uh, to take a look at this book because the, the relevance of what he's writing about is is very uh, uh, it, it's solid stuff. Let me put it that way. This isn't a uh, a radio show guy just capitalizing on his uh, radio show fame and and writing a book of fluff. Mark Levin's a very smart guy, and and the stuff he's writing about is tremendously uh, important to what we're experiencing now and what we and our children and our children's children will experience in the future as a direct result of the things that we're doing today. So, Roger Glenn, I want to thank you because... Uh, you're doing a great job there with uh, the Fredericksburg folks in promoting and uh, and helping out at the shoots. <clears throat> uh, if any of the rest of you guys would like to uh, to call in and tell uh, tell your local crews thank you, you can call three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero three four seven. Three zero eight eight seven nine zero, and we'll take your calls. Or if you just want to, if you want to just mention something, uh, if you just want to shoot the breeze, we'll always take your calls. You know, we let uh, Mr. Colorado speak for quite a while the other night, and I just want to tell you guys that I'm not, I'm not having him call 
are having us call him so that we can get him on the show and make a mockery of him or ridicule him. I don't think I did that. Uh, what I want to do is to show folks the huge disconnect that Americans are experiencing right now. The huge disconnect. And and who is this? Where did it come from? And the main answer is the media. If if and when there ever is any type of uh, of a huge internal strife or or something like a race war or something that uh, has that uh, begins in America or or riots or anything else like that, I think that you can trace it directly back to the media, and uh, and you can see how the media is fomenting these these events. They've got their hands in there, and they're just as bloody as they can be. Uh, the most recent ones, which I don't understand. What are they going to get out of this other than, I suppose, if they're just trying to fan the flames so they can continue writing this story. But I believe it was, uh, what was it, ABC or uh, or NBC? They just got uh, one or the other or both. One of them doctored the... Uh, 911 calls that they played. They chopped it up and played it, saying that that's how it came in, so that uh, it made it sound like this fellow, uh, it, it put him in the worst possible light. And uh, listen, I, I'll tell you right now, I don't know that he needs any help with that. Uh, I don't, from from my listening of it, I don't think that he had anything uh, racist to do. Now, even then, the media was calling him a white Mexican. He's a white Mexican. So he was a Mexican, but that wasn't that wasn't going to that just didn't sound bad enough. So they turned him into a white Mexican. And I've seen pictures of the guy. He doesn't he doesn't look any more white than than anybody else. He looks Hispanic. So I can only imagine that uh, that the white Mexican part is done to to help keep it as a racial thing. But anyway, I don't think that he needs uh, a whole lot of help. I don't think that I don't think it was racist. I think it was a stupid thing that he did, uh, and maybe and maybe I I could understand. Uh, it better if I were there in the neighborhood and my house had been broken into over and over again, then maybe I would do the same thing. I don't know. Maybe I'd walk around the streets and, and look for robbers and stuff. I think I got tired of getting robbed. The bottom line is, though, is that he, uh, even after he's told he didn't need any, the, uh, the dispatcher, the 911 dispatcher said they didn't want him to do that, which is follow the person. Then he should have backed off. He should have backed off or he should have followed from a long distance and said, look, I'm going to stay 200 yards away from the guy. <laughs> There's no way he should have gotten uh, close enough to engage any type of uh, physical combat. And uh, and why there was a combat, I don't know. Uh, so I, I don't think this was a case of anything racial. 
I think it was more of a case of somebody doing something the wrong way. Now, that doesn't make it any less of a crime if it is indeed a crime. I'm just saying I don't think that he did it because uh, because the guy was any certain color. I think that if he would have been uh, a white or another Hispanic guy doing the same thing, he would have acted the same way. Now, this is just my opinion. I don't have anything to back it up. And neither does anyone else. Neither does anyone else. If, if you, unless you were there watching it or listening to it or listening to his mind or he was telling you personally, that he couldn't wait to uh, to try and uh, do a citizen's arrest on some black guy because he hated black guys, then then you don't know any more than I do or anyone else. And we certainly can't uh, we certainly can't try him in uh, a court of public opinion. I mean, you can you can you can do whatever you want to do, uh, but. I don't know that it helps any. Uh, and now we have uh, also the uh, one of the other news stations who took their video of uh, Zimmerman and they uh, airbrushed it and photoshopped it so that they could clean up uh, any of the uh, the marks from the assault that were on his face and his head. They cleaned up all the blood and everything else, so it didn't look like he had anything whatsoever wrong with him. No bruises, no blood, no cuts. And said, here's the guy right here. And this is the way he looked after his, uh, uh, during the questioning. So, to me, that is criminal. That is criminal. Uh, if somebody committed some kind of act and they said, I, I did it because I saw that uh, ABC or that uh, NBC film of him, and he didn't look like he was beat up. I think he was lying. I think that would be a good enough uh, reason to charge uh, NBC or ABC with whatever crime that person then committed because he saw that. I'll tell you another thing, too, that that if there ever is some kind of a civil strife that is fomented by the media, the last thing if you're a person in the media, you will ever want to do is open your big mouth and tell me that you're a reporter or that you had something to do with the media or if I see your press card or anything else. Uh, uh, it's just the last thing you're going to want to do. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to make any any kinds of uh, threats or anything else because I'm a law-abiding citizen. <clears throat> But I'll tell you what, uh, the media, the media is the biggest devil this nation faces. Uh, They are the most, uh, they are the dumbest bunch of rocks uh, that I've ever seen. The dumbest bunch of rocks, the biggest liars, the most two-faced, and of course, yeah, I am. I'm doing. I'm, I'm saying this all as generalizations. Uh, I've met some good folks. Uh, not very often. I've met some, but I've I've had to deal with a lot more uh, of the others. Even the uh, I've done probably uh, a dozen different uh, uh, major radio and major television uh, interviews, and in one of the last ones, 
the uh, the uh, reporter, she got me twice. Uh, actually, more than that, she just got me over and over. She body slammed me everywhere. The the news article or the uh, the report starts off with. Uh, let's see, how do they put it? There's a man in Central Texas. I think they gave up my name. Who wants to put a gun in the hand of every man, woman, and child uh, in America? <laughs> now that may be the only true thing they said. I don't know. Uh, he just went down- downhill from there. And then the interview didn't even start off with me. It started off with uh, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, right? So uh, they open up with a shot of him talking, and he says, uh, "Right." Uh, we did not consider the Appleseed Project to be a threat to America at this time. However, blah, 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 blah. And that was even before even before I got a chance to talk. So, and, and for me, I think that that is a pretty, I think it's a pretty unethical thing to start off your conversation with. Because I did call it back, and I go, listen, I just wanted to give you some uh, my thoughts on the the interview, and I wanted to tell you that <clears throat> I can't remember the guy's name from the uh, uh, the ADL, the Anti Defamation League. But I said I want to tell you that I do not think that uh, Mr. Sonto is a pedophile at this time, but I'm continuing to investigate. Uh, you can say that about anybody for anything. Uh, I do not think that uh, he is a serial killer at this time, but I don't know. That's a pretty ridiculous statement to make, but that's how they started it off. And it went on and on from there. They, uh, and of course, they did what they what they normally do. They try and get the most the person with the the the, uh, the most apparent Texas accent to get on there and talk about his guns and such. And uh, and then. They wanted to do a, a separate interview off of the line, and the camera and stuff was set up, and the cameraman said, I'll be right back, and uh, giving me the impression that uh, you know that we weren't doing the interview. So she was asking me a bunch of stuff then, but even then, you know what, I didn't trust her because I, I knew I had a hot mic on. I didn't trust her a bit. But what it turns out is that the cameraman had turned the camera on and then walked off. To make it to make it seem like he wasn't there, but uh, but I didn't fall for that. I just noticed it after I watched the clip I, because the stuff I was saying, I remember I said that during the the uh, quote non-interview part of the interview, and uh, then the stuff that I said, they that you know they looked at it uh, in a linear fashion and they chopped it up and pieced it back together. To uh, to make it sound as inflammatory as possible, and uh, I don't remember what all they were, were saying, what they were asking about, but uh, they were. She was trying to get me to say something about armed revolution. I said no. I said I'm. We're, we got nothing to do with armed revolution. Uh, you know that was already decided back in uh, the American Revolutionary War. You know, and then in the Documents Act for that. It prevent us from having to go through that again. But the conversation then, she said, well, how can you think that we're going to, that we would ever 
do something like that now? So how can you think that we would do that? I mean, look, we're we're a society of uh, you know of, of cultured uh, folks, intelligent folks. It's you know we're not uh, uh, a bunch of barbarians and stuff like that. And I say, well, that's exactly uh, if you went and asked the the folks in Germany in uh, nineteen in the nineteen thirties. Now Germany was was the uh, was at the very tip of the spear in science, in culture. Uh, they led the nation. Uh, I'm sure all of you remember that at the end of the war, we went over there and we raided the uh, uh, Germany. We took all of their scientists, and their scientists are the ones that uh, built NASA and got us to the moon. Germany was at the very tip of the spear in science and culture. Uh, they had uh, uh, all of these symphonies, the ballets, the museums, on and on. And I'm sure that if you ask them in the early 30s, if you ask them, they said, and I said, look, do you think that within 10 years your nation will have been, your, the population in Germany will have been completely disarmed? Because that's the first thing that Hitler did. He instituted gun control and took the guns away from all of the German citizens. Place them only in the hands of the military and police. <clears throat> and do you think that your nation will end up uh, in a uh, systematic, uh, with the systematic murder of uh, all of the uh, mentally incompetent, of, the, of uh, homosexuals, of the insane, of, of all of the other races? Do you think that you guys will have a dictatorship that will end up? Uh, being the reason that 70 million people will be killed, they would have just started laughing and said, you've got to be kidding. There's no way that can happen. And so that's what uh, what I told her. I said, if you ask the people in Germany uh, back in the 30s, if they thought that anything like that could ever, ever happen to them, they used to, well, would have said no. But it did. It did happen to them, and it can happen to us the exact same way. It can happen to us in the exact same way. <clears throat> so there is my spiel about the media. Folks like uh, Mr. Colorado, because you can tell what he was saying, you can hear him repeating the things that were being said by the media. You can hear him repeating the things that were said <clears throat> by the uh, by the hate mongers and the strife mongers. Now, uh, I'm sure that there is a lot of good that uh, that a lot of the folks in the uh, the black community do. Uh, a lot of the community leaders do, but there's a lot of bad stuff that they do too. Uh, the stuff that uh, Sharpton did. I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Tawana Brawley story, but uh, just Google that and uh, and you'll see what. Uh, you'll see what has happened in the past. And the thing is, uh, the leaders in the uh, the black community, you know, I wouldn't say it would be any different in the white community. Something happened in the white community. I can guarantee you that uh, the, the folks like David Duke and everybody else are going to be out there uh, trying to get their dollars worth out of it. But right now it's in the black community. And you've got these folks that their jobs depend on this. Their livelihood depends on there being strife, on there being uh, 
dissatisfaction, disappointments. And uh, that's whenever they come out of the woodwork and they are in their glory. And they will try and push it as far as they can go. Because they also receive monetary... uh, uh, They'll they'll get uh, monetary uh, funding out of it. So you've got the media... And you've got other folks that are trying to get as much as they can out of this. But for folks to to look at it from only one viewpoint, and that is if you're like you're a white conservative, and you look at it from just that viewpoint, then then you're only seeing a small piece of the picture, because a good part of the of the nation thinks a bit differently, and uh, and you ought to at least listen to what they have to say. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying what Mr. Colorado said is right. I'm just saying it's what he believes. And uh, and perception is reality for most people. All right? Unless they uh, unless they have a revelation in some way, perception is reality. So what they perceive it to be is what it is. That means that that is what he believes. That's how he believes a certain thing is. And a great many Americans think this way. If you want to find out uh, even more uh, about the difference in how you think and how other people think, you can listen to some of the uh, foreign news, especially when it covers an event that occurs in the United States. Listen to some of the foreign news coverage of it. If you've got... uh, uh, satellite or something like that. You can usually catch uh, oh, BBC or some of the uh, the other different ones. I mean, on radio, you can listen to uh, to different uh, types of Asian news, uh, Hispanic news, stuff like that. You'd be very surprised because I think that most Americans don't realize they, they see the world in one way, and they think that's the way it is the way that they see it. But a lot of the world thinks completely different. You know, I had a friend that was in China, uh, I guess a little over a little over 10 years ago. <clears throat> and uh, he went over there uh, at the beginning of the big push, the big Chinese push. They were hiring tens of thousands of folks. If you had a bachelor's degree, it didn't matter what it was in, if you had a bachelor's degree, they would hire you. Either they'll take you to China, they'll, uh, and you will teach the Chinese people conversational English. All right. So the Chinese are learning conversational English uh, by the millions. And this was the time that we had the uh, the spy plane uh, fiasco. You know that one of the Chinese uh, fighter pilots ran his plane into the American spy plane and forced it down. And they blamed the Americans for the, I believe that the fighter, the pilot was killed. They blamed him, they blamed the uh, American crew for the death of the Chinese pilot. Now, my buddy said that the, that the attitude there in China was 
a pretty unbelievable one. He said that they were out on the streets marching and yelling and screaming for a cleansing war. They wanted a good cleansing war. That's what they, that's what they call it, the cleansing war. And the uh, the basics of the cleansing war was that they would get into a, uh, there would be a uh, an exchange, a nuclear exchange. Now, maybe this would have been a good idea at the time because they could only reach uh, uh, a small part of the nation at the time. Now, unfortunately, it was California. Uh, but they, at the time, they couldn't reach the rest of the country. Our nukes could reach every bit of China. But what they figured was they would have a cleansing war, and they knew they would get uh, they would get a good uh, walloping. But to them, that opened up job opportunities. Have a good cleansing war. So now the people would it wouldn't be hard to find a job then because uh, the nukes would probably kill I don't know three four hundred million people. And now you've got uh, all that. Uh, all those jobs, three or four hundred million jobs that uh, opened up, and uh, there you go. Good cleansing war. And uh, I don't know, maybe underneath that was a philosophy that the uh, that the targets uh, would also include all of the uh, all of the regime leaders and take them out, and uh, and that would allow the folks who had marched in Tiananmen Square back in the 90s, that would allow them to assume command. I don't know. But they were ready. The whole nation was buzzing and chanting and jumping up and down for a good cleansing war. I doubt that you guys heard much of it or thought that uh, that that's the way it was here. Uh, Most Americans don't pay any attention to what goes on uh, outside the borders of the nation. And uh, that's not such a great idea. You should be listening to or paying attention to what's going on in our nation. Uh, at the very least, seeking out information on the current events, things that are going on currently. And then you should also pay attention to what's going on in the nation's uh, around the world, especially when it's something uh, when it's something that has a good chance of impacting our nation. <clears throat> right now, right now in the news, we have President Obama's uh, his discussing. Uh, I believe it was uh, either on radio or on TV, the idea that the Supreme Court doesn't, uh, does not strike down laws that have been passed by a democratically elected, by the majority of a democratically elected Congress. Well, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but it sure happens. That's one of the reasons that we have a separation of powers. That's one of the reasons that we uh, that we have it, our government set up the way it is, so that one uh, individual, 
uh, like the uh, one branch of the government, like the executive branch, can't just force their their way, their ideas uh, down the throats of everyone. And uh, there was even a, uh, and I believe that Obama said that twice. And basically, what he's saying is that uh, that whenever he puts something into uh, uh, whatever he puts something in, and then it is uh, passed by the uh, the House and the Senate, then then that's it. You can't go back on it. But you you can't. I mean, that's been proven over and over again in our history. You know, the Supreme Court can decide that even if it's a law that was elected by, uh, that was proposed by uh, everybody in the nation, and it goes into, uh, and it becomes a law, if it goes against our founding documents, if it goes against the Constitution, then it can be stricken down. It can be struck from the laws because it is an unconstitutional law. That's to say that it's a law that exists outside the framework of our Constitution, outside the the uh, the limitations, uh, or outside what is limited by the Constitution. And and this is a good thing uh, because and and the opposite of this being a good thing is. The folks who say that the Constitution uh, is a living, breathing thing that is should be able to be uh, pulled and twisted. And it's very malleable and can be formed anything that it, that it needs to be formed into. That's very, very dangerous thinking because if you don't have a a solid framework. It guides you in in deciding what is right or wrong as a nation. And then there could be a situation where there is no right or wrong, right? You could have a situation where <laughs> where anything can happen. Uh, if you if you allow the Constitution to become weakened, then then what is, uh, if you make the Constitution weak, then what says what this country can or can't do? If you make the Constitution weak enough, then you can have a president that could go in and say, look, I'm the president, and we're all going to do what I say, no matter what it is I say. If I tell you guys that you're all going to get in line, you're all going to stand on your left foot, you're going to raise your right foot one foot in the air, and you're going to hold your right hand over the top of your head, one foot above the top of your forehead, then you better do it or I'm going to send you to prison, each and every one of you guys. Then that, that could happen. I mean, why couldn't it? Because there is nothing that's going to stop somebody from saying that. If you if you say that the government can force you to buy something like uh, health care or something like that, then why can't it force you to... Uh, what was the example they gave? Why can't it force you to buy broccoli? Each and every American will buy one bundle of broccoli uh, on every third day, and uh, and this will help support the farmers. It will help ensure that Americans are getting the right amount of, uh, of vitamins and roughage in their diet because we've determined that the broccoli 
uh, will help most Americans stay healthier by an average of uh, uh, 75 additional healthy days, which will allow uh, uh, for uh, the savings of uh, $500 million uh, against insurance claims, et cetera, over the course of 10 years, uh, then it's justified, right? Then that can be made a law, and who wants? Why can't it be? Because if there's no constitution, if there's no rules, then why can't you make up your own? If your guys are going to play Monopoly, and you get the rules out, and somebody says, "I'm going to buy this house and this one, and I'm going to jump this, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to skip uh, go, pass and go." Uh, and you they say, "Wait a minute, hold on, let's see if let's see if it's in the rule book." And the the other person says, "Oh, you know what? That rule book. That's oh, that's like the rule book that my grandfather used. Let's have some new rules." And he grabs it in your hand, and he crosses the line out that says, uh, you, you, "You've got to pass go. You've got to do this or that." And scratches that and writes out a new rule. He goes, "Okay, here's a new rule." And you go, "Well, I don't like that." And he just says, "Whatever. I'm bigger than you. I can punch you in the face if you don't like it." And so then you got to do it, right? That's the problems that you face when you weaken the Constitution. Uh, you start you start making for a very scary possibility. Now I'm not uh, I'm not talking about any political party. I'm not uh, saying that one party or the other does this. Uh, more or less than another party. I'm not saying that... Uh, uh, I'm not advocating one party or the other. But I personally don't advocate any party because I think they're all criminals. All right? If you want my personal opinion, I think they are all criminals in Washington. I think they've gone way past the point of 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 listening or caring about what most of America needs, what most of America needs, what our needs are, what our what our wants are, what the laws are, what the right thing to do is. We're so lost right now. I don't know. I don't know if there is a way back. I don't know if there's a trail back because there's no breadcrumbs that are going to show us how to get back. The only thing we have is the Constitution. So I would advise you guys to get you up a copy of the Constitution first off and then read it. Read it. Because that will tell you exactly what uh, what can or can't be done. It will tell you exactly how the nation is supposed to work, and uh, I think you'll be a, a good bit surprised when you read a lot of stuff in there. When you hear the people uh, spatting stuff all the time, the Constitution says such and such, and it says this, and it says that, and you get the Constitution, you start reading it, and you go, well, where is that? Because I can't find it. When you hear that, uh, when you hear people tell, yelling, uh, they're shaking their fist at you, and and saying, damn you, damn you Christians. There's supposed to be a separation of church and state. There is no 
separation of church and state. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution was not written to separate church and state, and it wasn't written to uh, protect the church. It was, if anything, uh, the Constitution said that the states all had the right, really, to do whatever they want as far as religion was concerned, uh, but that the federal government would make no laws concerning it. So get your Constitution and read it, and then use that as part of your guide uh, whenever you're speaking to your senators and your congressmen. And when you see things that are going on uh, in America, when you see things like the McCain-Feingold Act, uh, you know that the, the First Amendment was not written to protect the burning of the flags or protect uh, urinating on crosses or anything like that. I mean, it does protect it, and and it should, you know. I mean, it should. You shouldn't... Uh, I'm not in favor of limiting anybody's speech. You want to burn a flag? I don't, I, I don't see the see the point in it. I find it very disrespectful. But it's your right to do so if you want to. It's your right to do so. If you want to uh you want to draw pictures of uh uh of Jesus uh in uh, in derogatory fashion or uh uh or Muhammad or anybody, then, you know, I, I don't I don't see it as, uh, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't uh, draw a picture of, of any uh, religious uh, person, but I think it's their right to do so. What it was written to protect was political speech, so that whenever you said something about the governor of Massachusetts, that they couldn't come and put you in jail like they were doing. If uh, if you didn't like the governor or the, uh, the the local constable or something like that, and you went around town saying, the governor is a crook, hear ye, hear ye, the governor is a crook. Well, he would send a couple of guys to your house to crack you in the head and throw you in prison. Whether it was true or not, uh, more likely if it was true, but whether it was true or not, they would come and put you in prison. And that's what it was meant to protect. So the very idea that you could have a law passed that says you can there, there can be no uh the, there can be no uh discussion of the political candidates uh in the 30 days prior to the election is it, I, I I'm just stunned. I'm stunned that you could get something through like that. Because that's the very thing it was designed to uh, protect. And yet what happened? Uh, it didn't protect it, did it? Because because everybody thought that it was so ridiculous that somebody was going to step forward and uh, point it out and strike it down, but nobody did, and they got through. What will the next thing that gets through be? What's the next thing that they're going to push through that, uh, that you're going to get stuck with, right? I don't know, and you don't know either, and that's why you better keep an eye open for it. <clears throat> All right, I've uh, blown about an hour here now on my 
my tirades against uh, the media and uh, and the unconstitutionalists. Uh, and uh, I'll just mention again real quick that if you got something, uh, someone that you want to say thanks to or something that you want to say on the air, you're welcome to do so. 347-308-8790 and, uh, and we'll get you on the air at some point if you uh, uh, after you talk to the call screener. <clears throat> Uh, all right, we've got uh, we've got the the road to war, the American Revolutionary War. Now we talked last week about uh, about how this happened, about how it how it began, uh, the intolerable acts. And the uh, the Tea Party and the Boston Massacre and the uh, power alarms. <clears throat> now uh, we've got the Port of Boston closed, and we have the folks uh, there uh, suffering terribly because of the. Uh, uh, the retribution uh, of the British against the uh, the colonists for their Tea Party. You know, they uh, sent in these ships full of British soldiers. The soldiers came into town. They took over the town. They were uh, uh, quartered in folks' homes and the uh, in their businesses, etc. And uh, it was basically a uh, uh, an occupational type army there. All right. Uh, here we've got a caller on the line. Let me go ahead and bring you on. Uh, area code 760, you're on the air? Wallow Scout. Hey, who's this? Oh, it's Justin. Chuck. Justin. Okay. Oh, Justice. Okay. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm not bad. I just got done with the. I'm having to drive and pick somebody up, so I uh, I had to uh, leave the chat room and listen to it on the phone. But okay, so you're just listening. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, what the? How are things in your neck of the woods? Oh, they're not bad. Uh, got a bunch of shoots coming up for uh, this Liberty Weekend and. It, it, it's Southern California, you know. Where are you going to be? Uh, I'm going to be at Rainbow, California on Sunday. I, I have to work on Saturday. Uh, you know, that, that job that actually pays the bills, but unfortunately. But on Sunday, I'm going to Rainbow. be over at, Rainbow, yep. California. Now, that, why did that not surprise me that there's a place in California named Rainbow? Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen. I love California. Uh, I've only been out there a few times in the last few years, but I really do love California. But it didn't surprise me that there's a place named Rainbow because I can uh, – any more than it would surprise me that there was like a Rainbow Street in Austin uh, because we have the same – the exact same twirlies in Austin that you guys have out uh, in wherever in California. I mean, we've got the uh, the folks in the uh, – uh, you know, in the – I don't know what you'd call it, 
that's a, a cross between the 70s and homelessness. Uh, and then uh, lots of patchouli and stuff like that. But uh, uh, Rainbow, California, that sounds beautiful. So you're going to be there actually, for the weekend. Yeah. It, it's actually a very uh, small, uh, mostly avocado farm type of community. Uh, very, very far away from the uh, the Bay Area. Uh. Right, uh, avocado farms. Man, I love avocados. Uh, all right. Well, well. Uh, is there anything special that you guys are doing for the Rainbow event? I don't know. You know what? Last year we had that. Uh, that lit, that volley, and that was that was pretty cool. I hope we do something like that again this year. Yeah, as far as I know, the volley's still going to be on, and uh, I'm sure that uh, that uh, hopefully somebody will be you know uh, uh, coordinating the volley. But uh, yeah, I think it's a very important thing, and I'd, I'd like to. I think it would be great if we could get a if we get, could get folks to video. Like starting out in California, and then working your way uh, uh, across the nation, or starting on the East Coast and working your way across to the West Coast, and filming the different events uh, during the volley, and then we could take the raw footage and splice it into uh, the 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 different. Each time a name was read, we could have it from a different place and have the volley fired. And have the clock ticking under it, and uh, I think that would be a I think that'd be a pretty powerful video. Well, well, without volunteering my, myself or anything, I suppose all you'd have to do is ask any uh, any shoot to um, to uh, videotape a specific name being read, and just video that little portion of it, and it'd be pretty easy to splice together. Well, you could get them to uh, get them to do the the whole. You know the whole volley. Get somebody to record the whole volley thing, and that way you could, uh, you know, you'd have uh, plenty of room to either go from left to right, or go from left to right to middle to left to right, or where, however you wanted to do it. I'm going to ask if folks will do that, and we'll put together a uh, a video of that that we can uh, post on YouTube and maybe use uh, some promotional material as a promotional material in some of the other upcoming events. But I think that would be a good idea. Have the volley run and then have uh, folks at all of the locations video it and then send the video in and we'll uh, have it professionally edited and mounted. And uh, I think that will turn out really good. Well, that sounds great. I can't wait to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Me either. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, listen. Uh, anything else you want to get out while you're uh, while we're talking to you? Um, no, no, not right now. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, best of uh, luck on the rainbow shoot, and uh, make sure that uh, I, I'm not putting you, I'm not volunteering you to do it, but make sure that uh, you help find somebody that can uh, video the the rainbow shoot, even if it's just a cell phone video, if that's all you can get. Well, yeah, I'll I'll try to do something at my location. 
Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good one, Scott. Uh, I'm not going to hang up on you. I'm just going to – I'll just move you back uh, over into uh, uh, into the, uh, the online holding pattern, okay? All righty. All right. All right. So anybody else that uh, – if you'd like to call in and uh, – the number is 347 uh, That's our uh, call-in number. And you're welcome to call in and talk about the uh, the folks, your local crew folks, give them a thanks. You're welcome to call in and talk about a uh, any commercial ventures you're on or to talk about the April 19th, anything you have planned uh, for then. And, but I would like the folks who are listening, I'd like for you to uh, consider uh, finding somebody to videotape the uh, uh, somebody to videotape the the uh, folly so that we can get uh, a good uh, a good video from each of the locations and then splice it together uh, to use it for a promotional material. All right. Okay, going back to uh, going back to the events to the to the the trail that brought us to the the April nineteenth event. Uh, the all of the things that were happening, and I've told you guys before that that this is a, a fairly common occurrence. That really, that, that nobody really talks about that much, and that is the way that the way that these things happen, the way that that wars occur. Very seldom is there ever any kind of a war or a revolution or anything like that that happens. It is 100% uh, a shock. I mean, even Pearl Harbor was not, uh, it was a shock, the attack was, because everybody was saying it was a dirty pool, even though uh, it was a great idea by the Japanese, and it was, uh, and the the, the way that they uh, carried it out uh, was spectacular. I mean, uh, it's, it's what, it's what, in their minds, what they should have done. Uh, but of course, it didn't turn out. It didn't turn out the way that they thought that it would. But very seldom does any war start that's completely unexpected. That folks say, "Oh my gosh, where did that come from? We never saw that coming." There are there are effects of wars that happen that folks say that about, like the. Uh, the internal strife that occurred in uh, Iraq after uh, after Bush's famous uh, combat operations has ceased uh, speech, the major combat operations has ceased speech, because nobody, uh, at least as far as the American government, the uh, intelligence agencies or anything, none of them had been tasked to try and understand what might happen Within the within the nation, as far as regional and religious differences, that you know, the strife that might occur between the uh, uh, the different folks, 
They were occupying Iraq and Afghanistan. And for most people, that was a shock. The uh, the stuff that went on after the liberation of uh, Iraq. But the the war itself was no shock. I mean, that was a... Uh, it was at the top of the news every day, you know, big uh, countdown uh, to the war, you know. Uh, there's a show on uh, on television called Starship Troopers. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, additions to it now, I guess. And uh, I, it's not a... Uh, it's not a uh, any type of a uh, of a masterpiece, but I, I I think when you know when I saw it, I thought it was very relevant as far as how the news was covering the uh, the the world, the Earth's involvement in a uh, in an interplanetary carry uh, uh, war, and uh, uh, it, it was like. Uh, uh, I don't know, Fox News and Google uh, and uh, MSNBC all wrapped together in one. And uh, uh, that's how the the countdown to Iraq was going. So the wars are, are usually never unexpected. Uh, there's always there's always a buildup. There's always uh, a trail heading toward it. You have, it's almost like two roads that maybe they're a, a thousand miles apart, but each one has a, uh, the, the one on the uh, on the right side has a, uh, you know, a two or three degrees uh, bend to the left. The one on the left side is a two or three degrees bend to the right. So, as they, uh, as they go off into the distance, they're curving toward each other, and they're destined to to meet at some point. And that's the way the American Revolutionary War began. You have two opposing sides. You have two uh, two distinct opinions of of how the colonists felt they should be governed, and how the British felt the colonies should be governed. And, uh, and neither side was uh, was really willing to budge, and so you have a situation where uh, one side does something, and the other side answers. And as each as uh, each side does something, and the and the and there's an answer to it, then there is escalation, and the they begin their march toward each other. Uh, usually, uh, except in case of something like Iraq or something like that, there's usually not a, a date. They say, well, at such and such date, if something doesn't change at such and such date, uh, then we're going we're gonna to get it on. We're going to smack each other in the eye, and we're going to get it on. We're going to see who's going to boss this nation. It doesn't work like that, usually. Uh, usually, it just keeps going. Until at a certain point, and it's very seldom that you ever really that anybody ever realizes that they cross this point. But at a certain point, there's 
there is an acceptance, I would say, of the fact that a conflict, that uh, that combat, uh, physical conflict is inevitable. And at that point, then then a lot of the uh, the attitudes and a lot of the way that uh, each side reacts changes. And uh, to a great deal, that happened in the colonies in uh, 1774. You had the, uh, the events leading up to it, and then by 1774, uh, you had uh, basically a certainty that there was going to be an armed conflict. Uh, all of the uh, uh, all of the towns, all of the uh, the townships and the cities began to train. Their militia began to train in earnest. Uh, you had the uh, the different uh, governing bodies set up to to try and uh, coordinate the efforts of what was planned to be the resistance. You had uh, the Committee of Safety. You had the Committee of Correspondence. You had the uh, uh, Continental Congress. So the nation was uh, in lockstep with the uh, with the British were uh, were lockstepping their way. Uh, into into a conflict. Let me read you some of uh, of, and I'm going to be reading again out of the Spirit of '76. And I told you guys before that one of the reasons I like this book so much is because it has uh, it has all of the the correspondence from the folks at that time period. So, and, and I've totally explained to you before that uh, when you read a book on history. You can either you can usually read it one of two ways. You'll either have an author who has read these letters, and then he will decide what they mean, and he'll write it down. He'll, and then you will read what it means according to him. You'll read how this history, the history played out according to him. Or you can read the actual letters from the, and the, the history written by the folks who were there, who saw it, who participated in it, and you can make your own decisions about the, how and why it happened. <clears throat> Uh, you just have to keep in mind that uh, that one, you're looking back on something that has already happened, and you know all the details of it. And the folks that were writing it at the time did not know what the outcome was going to be. They didn't know what the details, the overall details were going to be. They usually only knew what their little tiny uh, perspective on it was. All right, uh, well, we'll start off with a letter from uh, George Washington to George William Fairfax. And uh, he wrote this one. He was in Williamsburg on June 10, 1774. And, uh, and the title of this is God, God Only Knows What Is to Become of Us. The letter states, Our assembly met at this place, the 4th. According to uh, prorogation and dissolved the 26th, for entering into a resolve of which the enclosed is a copy, in which the governor 
thought, reflected too much upon his majesty and the British Parliament to pass over unnoticed. This dissolution was as sudden as unexpected, for there were other resolves of a much more spirited nature ready to be offered to the House, which would have been unanimously adopted respecting the Boston Port Bill, as it is called, but were withheld till the important businesses of the county could be gone through. As the case stands, the Assembly sat in 22 days for nothing. The day after this event, the members convened themselves at the Raleigh Tavern and entered into the enclosed association, which being followed two days after by an express from Boston, accompanied by the sentiments of some meetings in our sister colonies to the northward. All right, so I'm going to stop here for just a second while you know that that the, this, the meeting that uh, Washington was referring to was not an isolated event. Uh, it wasn't just him uh, meeting with some folks in Williamsburg and the rest of the nation was waiting, to, waiting, uh, you know, on uh, pin cushions, on pins and eagles to find out what the events, what the, what the results of this meeting was going to be. Everybody was having their own meetings. The, all the colonies were all meeting it simultaneously and trying to figure out, because remember at the time, this wasn't uh, a union of 13 colonies. This was 13 separate colonies. Each one would have been free to uh, to seek out a separate peace uh, in the upcoming events. Each one could have said, "Look, uh, we don't we don't feel the same way you do. We want to uh, we want to support uh, England in this." So they were, these were 13 separate colonies, and uh, and they were all having meetings trying to figure out trying to figure out what was going to happen to them. What were they going to do? What was what should they do? How should they handle this? Uh, all right. Uh, in short, the ministry may rely on it that Americans will never be taxed without their own consent that the cause of Boston, the despotic measures in respect to it, I mean now is and ever will be considered as the cause of America. Uh, in in parentheses, not that we approve their conduct in destroying the tea, and that we shall not suffer ourselves to be sacrificed by piecemeals, though God only knows what is to become of us, threatened as we are with so many hovering evils as hang over us at present having a cruel and bloodthirsty enemy upon our backs, and he's now he's referring to the Indians uh, in the West, between whom our frontier inhabitants, many skirmishes have happened, and with whom a general war is inevitable, whilst those from whom we have a right to seek protection are endeavoring by every piece of art and despotism to fix the shackles of slavery upon us. <clears throat> All right. And we've spoken before about the the uh, the problems that the colonists faced in the West with the Indian nations and how the uh, the how England <clears throat> had uh, had made uh, pacts and uh, and treaties with the Indians because it was not to England's uh, favor. Not to their benefit that the colonists should expand westward. And we've spoken about this before. If the colonists 
as the farther that they went from the coast, then the less they would be able to rely on the imported goods from England, right? And the way that the colonies were set up was the colonies were given charters. They're saying, look, we'll, we'll allow you to go to this area, this, uh, this land, and claim it for England, and you'll have a charter from the government to do so, but you will also, part of the agreement is that you're going to uh, collect the raw materials from this new country, you're going to trade them solely with us. You'll send them back to us solely as your sole trading partner. And then you will buy solely from us the goods you need uh, to provide your life there in this new nation, all the finished goods. You'll you'll sell the raw materials solely to us, and you'll buy the finished product solely from us, right? So the it did not benefit the English, the for the colonists to go any further inland. The further they went inland, the farther away they went from the coast where the ports were, where the finished goods were shipped to, where the raw material was shipped from. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, if you were uh, uh, 800 miles inland and you were cutting down trees to be made into uh, into planks and furniture, etc., you wouldn't be sending that raw material to the coast to be shipped out. What you'd have to do is you'd have to build a sawmill there. You'd have to manufacture your own planks. And since the sawmill was right there and they had planks that you could get right there, then the uh, the furniture manufacturers, well, they would set up shop there too because their raw materials were right there and and on and on. And England was getting none, would get nothing out of that. The Indians, on the other hand, <clears throat> did not want the colonists encroaching any further upon their tribal lands. They didn't want them going any further westward. So the pact between the English and the Indians was that uh, they, they will not, we won't come any further west and encroach upon your tribal lands. And whenever the colonists began making uh, noises about uh, being dissatisfied with uh, British rule, then uh, the English began helping the the Indians uh, to make their attacks upon the colonists. Now, I'm not talking about right now, but the the in, the Indians in 1774, were beginning to uh, to attack the westward movement of the colonists. So the colonies felt that they had the Indians, as Washington said, to their back. They had the Indians in the west, and they were attacking and raiding up and down the frontier. And then they had the English to the east, uh, who they felt they were supposed to be protected by, and yet these were the same guys that were beginning to occupy their towns and suppress them under the Insolvable Acts. All right. Uh, I'll read you one more quick letter from uh, George Washington to Brian Fairfax. This was after uh, Washington had returned back home uh, from Williamsburg to Mount Vernon. All right. He says to Fairfax, the conduct of the people of Boston could not justify the rigor of their measures 
unless there had been a requisition of payment and refusal to it, nor did that measure require an act to deprive the government of Massachusetts Bay of their charter or to exempt offenders from trial in the place where offenses were committed, as there was not, nor could not be, a single instance produced to manifest the necessity of it. Shut the window. Those are my guard dogs. Now, at the time, I'm sure you guys, uh, we've talked about this before, too. At the time, uh, the, uh, the, the government, or the, uh, the England, had, uh, had basically dissolved the government of Massachusetts Bay. And not only that, but they had, they had made it so that if you committed, uh, an offense, in the colonies, then you were shipped to England uh, to be tried. Now, you may think to say, you may say, what, well, what's the problem with that? Is because if you're in England, how are you going to have witnesses testify for you? How are you going to get them? Uh, even if they said, okay, well, we'll bring one over for you. That means that you're going to wait there for your witness while you're in prison, and they're going to send a ship, and the ship will come back with him. And maybe it takes six or seven months. And you're going to be in prison the whole time. You're not going to be working on your farm or anything else or working in your business. You're going to be in prison for those six or seven months if they even let the witness come. <clears throat> so, uh, and he continues, are not all these things self-evident proofs of a fixed and uniform plan to tax us? If we want further proofs, do not all the debates in the House of Commons serve to confirm this? And has not General Gage's conduct since his arrival, uh, in parentheses, in stopping the address of his council and publishing a proclamation more becoming a Turkish pasha than an English governor, declaring it treason to associate in any manner by which the commerce of Great Britain is to be affected, closed parentheses, exhibited an unexampled testimony. And, and of course, what he was saying right there is that if you if you did anything to affect the commerce of Great Britain, if you, uh, if you sold something to France, if you bought something from France uh, or, or, or from the West Indies, anything, that was considered a treasonable act. In short, what for the priests are wanted to justify one of the designs of the ministry than their own acts, which are uniform and plainly tending to the same point, nay, if I mistake not, avowedly to fix the right of taxation? What hope, then, from petitioning when they tell us that now or never is the time to fix the matter? Shall we, after this, whine and cry for relief when we have already tried it in vain? Or shall we simply sit? and see one province after another fall in prey to despotism. If I was in any doubt as to the right which Parliament of Great Britain had to tax us without our consent, I should most heartily coincide with you in opinion that to petition, and petition only, is a proper method to apply for relief, because we should then be asking a favor and not claiming a right which by the laws of nature of our and our constitution, we are, in my opinion, indubitably entitled to. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that to petition 
to petition the government of England to, and to petition only uh, would be incorrect because we should then be asking a favor of them. Hey, can you would you do us a favor and and let us uh, have the trial here? Uh, would you do us a favor and uh, and not tax us without representation? It's not a favor. This isn't something that should be granted as a favor or in a petition. It was a right. They were they was under the the British Constitution. They had a right to this. They shouldn't be asking if the government could do please do this for them. They should be demanding that the government do it as for their constitution. He continues on. I should even think it criminal to go further than this under such an idea, but none such I have. I think the Parliament of Great Britain hath no more right to put their hands into my pocket without my consent than I have to put my hand into yours for money. And this being already urged to them in a firm but decent manner by all the colonies, what reason is there to expect anything from their justice? Sound familiar? The Parliament of Great Britain has no more right to put their hands into my pocket without my consent than I had to put my hands into yours for money. Now, he's not saying that they don't have a right uh, to do something like tax, but the tax has to be by the consent of the governed. You can't just go out and levy a tax on the people without it being, without it being the consent of the people. And and I think that we've seen, uh, I think that we've seen a great deal of this. Uh, Lately, have no more right to put their hands into my pockets without my consent than I have to my, put my hands into yours for money. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine that. I'm trying to imagine if we all were up there at uh, on Capitol Hill and the congressmen and senators were coming out, and uh, we just walked up there and we said, "Hey, what's going on?" They still got their hand to shake it, and you said, "No, no, not that. I want this." And you just reach your hand in their pocket and start taking the money, and they're going, hey, what's going on? And you just said, shut up, shut up, and take it. What they would say, because because that's what that's what we get. That's what we get from them. So uh, they're already, uh, they're already, uh, there's already discussions of it. Uh, back and forth all over uh, the nation. All right. Uh, the Boston Port Bill went into effect on June 1st in, in uh, uh, 1774. They closed the Port of Boston not only to the... Uh, uh, to the overseas trade with other nations, mainly England, like I said, because it was it was uh, treasonous trade with anyone else, but even to the coastal shipping along the uh, the east coast. There, that means that uh, if you were uh, south of Boston and you uh, you went out and you uh, hauled in some fish, and you wanted to bring your fish to Boston to sell it, which is the most likely place where you get the best price. 
it was closed. You couldn't go there. Uh, the fateful day in Boston when they closed it was observed with the fasting and prayer. Public buildings uh, in Boston were had been draped in uh, in black. They'd been gilded in black, you know. Uh, no different than than if someone uh, you know important or famous had been killed. Uh, the uh, churches were all tolling their bells from from morning to night, not just on the hour or anything else. They were they were going nonstop morning to night. Pretty soon, the, uh, the British reg- regulars or the regiments of redcoats had uh, turned Boston and the, the whole town into a garrison. Now, by November of 1774, there were 11 regiments quartered in the city, uh, which is a good, pretty good number of folks. And uh, if you, uh, most of you guys are familiar with the uh, Paul Revere's Ride, the book Paul Revere's Ride. If you look in the book, uh, take a look here and see if I can just scout it out real quick. Yeah, on uh, page 10, page 11, on page 11, there's a diagram of the city of Boston. <clears throat> and it's not that big. And uh, and then, now if you go there now, there, it's, then it was pretty much an island. The only way off was either by boat or uh, by the Boston Neck. And Boston Neck, at, at its most narrowest point there, you could almost uh, throw a rock across the neck. Uh, so, so there was uh, it was a pretty uh, defensible position because there was really no way onto it except by sea or the Boston Neck, and that only took uh, a couple of cannons and uh, not that many folks to barricade that. Uh, now it's they they filled all of the uh, all of the land in, so you can it, it looks nothing like it used to, but uh, but at the time it was basically an island. Uh, they garrisoned the town. Eleven regiments uh, had been put into Boston uh, during this time. There were, and I don't remember what the population of Boston was. It was fairly significant. But during the time, thousands of the Bostonians, uh, they packed up and left. They fled to the country or to the nearby towns. Trade within the city was at a standstill. Stores had been closed up. Property uh, values fell. And only uh, the money spent by the, the British kept any form of economic life in the town. You know, they had the the eleven regiments that were there had to be fed, had to have their uh shoes fixed, their shoes cobbled, they had to have uh, hay for their horses and uh and all of the, the things it takes to to run eleven regiments uh of folks. <clears throat> the regiment uh let's see that I believe that's right around eight or nine hundred men. Uh, so we're talking about 10,000 uh, folks, which is a fairly significant significant number of folks. But that was the really the only uh, the only form of trade was between the the British residents and the the local folks. Uh, Governor Hutchinson had been permitted to return to England, and General Gage was the acting 
governor. He was basically the, the ruler of all of the colonies at the time. It was Gage uh, who who had kind of designed this, kind of the architect of this, and he hoped that that uh, by this he was going to bring the Bostonians to their knees, but uh, but it wasn't as easy as he thought. Uh, even Gage wrote, uh, he says, I find, wrote Gage in surprise, that they have some warm friends in New York and Philadelphia. And they did. And uh, and the other colonies, seeing what was being done to Boston, uh, began loading up wagons and sending in food and supplies uh, from all over. Uh, flour, fish, sheep, uh, cattle, uh, hog, grain, rice, everything. Uh, and that was keeping the city alive because, as I said, the, the, the punitive measures from the from the, the British closing it down and making the the the, the port uh, pretty much of a desert. Now, by trying to isolate uh, Boston, the British government actually made uh, the city pretty much of a martyr. And and this, remember I told you about the uh, uh, unintended consequences. This went a great way in unifying the colonies because they could look at Boston and they could see uh, the, the the very heavy-handed manner that Boston was was being dealt with, and uh, and there, but by the grace of God, go they, and the uh, the none of them uh, none of them felt it was right, and it helped to to unify the colonies. If there had been a less punitive measure. And uh, in some form or fashion, I think that uh, I think it would have it wouldn't have caused nearly the uh, the unification that this did. But as I said, it was uh, an unintended consequence. This 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 began to teach the colonies uh, and if to form. Uh, supply routes. It began to uh, uh, to make them pull together as one instead of saying, "Well, you know, they did such and such, and they're they're getting their just desserts." Instead, they said, "Man, there's no way that they should have that that should have been done to them. Maybe they should have had this or that or a small spanking or this. I don't know, but man, they're just getting they're getting beat down, and, and we all need to help." And it began to unite the colonies and. Uh, Really, the best description of Boston during this time uh, was done by uh, uh, the, by John Andrews, who was a, a Whig merchant, and he stayed in Boston uh, mainly just to guard his property and his mercantile business. But he stayed in there. And he wrote letters, his letters to his friend uh, who had a store in Philadelphia, and you can read uh, read some of the stories of. Uh, uh, of what was going on, and uh, uh, let's see, and 
the mounting tensions between uh, the British regiments and the folks of Boston. I mean, there's a anytime you have occupational troops, I don't care how good and kind they are, or how how you know how they act uh, and they put up the best front, etc. It doesn't matter because they're occupational troops, and inevitably it will lead to the troops hating the people of the uh, the city or town or country that they're occupied, and the folks from the area that's being occupied will hate the troops, and that will start feeding on each other on it, and it'll get worse and worse and worse. It, there is no, uh, as far as I know, there is there are no accounts uh, that are different than that, and uh, and the mounting discontent of the colonists uh, ended up with the uh, with uh, with several. Uh, with several things, then uh, let's see. We talked about the uh, we talked about the powder alarms. Now that happened uh, during the occupation of Boston, and we know from that that uh, that the small force that Gage had uh, had sent out to uh, to get the gunpowder from Quarry Hill, which was in Charleston. You know, right across the right across the bay. The the news of it of his expedition to go out and seize the powder, uh, it flew like a like a wildfire from town to town, and as uh, as each time it was told and retold, it got worse and worse until there was a the tale was a a, a monstrous tale of uh, pillage and. And murder and rapon and within 24 hours, 4,000 Minutemen had uh, marched on Boston, which was uh, it was actually a, a, a number larger than the army that Gage was commanding. And near the next two days, thousands more straggled in. So around 20,000 men uh, came to Boston not into the city, but came to the outskirts of Boston uh, after the first powder alarm. And the uh, the lesson, obviously, was lost on Gage. I don't know why he thought it was going to be different, because he, he, he tried a couple of more powder raids, right? And the next two raids were failures. But then he tried one more, and we know what happened on that one, right? That was eight months later, and uh, uh, and that was the raid on Concord. So obviously he didn't learn his lesson when he when he went out and he seized the barrels over at Quarry Hill in Charleston, and had twenty thousand guys show up to oppose him. Otherwise, he would have said, "I right, we can't do that again because." Uh, we're gonna be, we're, it's gonna get bad. They get it again. But anyway, uh, John Andrews had stayed in Boston, uh, as we said, to to try and guard his property, make sure that nothing happens to his property. He's writing to his friend uh, William Barrell in Pennsylvania. He says, "Imagine to yourself the horror painted in the face of a string of slaves condemned by the Inquisition to perpetual drudgery at the oar." 
such is a dejection imprinted on every countenance we meet in this once happy but now totally ruined town. Yes, Bill, nothing will save us but an entire stoppage of trade both to England and the West Indies. Throughout the continent, and that must be determined as speedily as absolutely. He's talking about ending trade completely with England, not uh, not having the just the port thing shut down. He's talking about stopping trade completely with England, and that would mean beginning trade with other nations. The least hesitancy on your part to the southward, and the matter is over. We must acknowledge and ask forgiveness for all past offenses, whether we have been guilty of any or not, give up the point so long contested, and acknowledge the right of Parliament to damn us whenever they please. And to add to all this, we must pay for an article unjustly forced upon us with a sole view to pick our pockets. Not that I would by any means justify the destruction of that article. And of course, I want you to... The reason I want to point this out is because everybody is is saying that uh, that that they're they're saying that that the the Boston Tea Party, although they don't think that that it was right of the of England to force them to buy tea. <laughs> now listen. Let me stop for just a second and remind you. Let me tell you. I want you to to understand what was going on here. We talked about this last week. The government was saying that the colonists had to buy tea, had to buy the tea from these guys. They had to pay this price, and that resulted in the Boston Tea Party. Now, what today is the government telling us? The government is telling us we have to buy health insurance, and. I don't know that I don't know that there's there's not any ships sitting off the in the port of Houston or in Galveston filled to the brim with uh, insurance policies, but if there were, that would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? The government the government cannot tell you that you have to buy something, but even when the Boston Tea Party came, almost everybody says. And this is in uh, parentheses. Not that I would by any means justify the destruction of that article. They're all saying that that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to destroy something. It wasn't a good thing to go and and raid the ships, the the ships in the uh, port of Boston. Uh, And now, of course, in their mind, maybe they thought it was. Maybe they were saying, good job, man. But they're also saying that it wasn't a good thing. With that is done, where are we? Why, in much the same situation as before, without one flattering hope of relief, entirely dependent on the will of an arbitrary minister, would sacrifice the kingdom to gratify a cursed revenge. More convincing proof we cannot have than in the perfect act for blocking up our port, which could not have been more severely and strongly expressed if all the devils in the infernal regions had had a hand in the droughting of it shall endeavor to consent myself to stay here till I see what turn affairs will take. If to my liking, well, if not, shall look out for some other place of residence, as I sincerely believe they intend to put their threats in execution, which is to make the town a desolate wilderness and the grass to grow in our streets. Our militia was yesterday mustered 
for the reception of General Gage, who was proclaimed governor amid the acclamations of the people. He expressed himself as sensible of the unwelcome errand he came upon, but as a servant of the crown, he was obliged to see the act put into execution, but would do all in his power to serve us. Whether they were only words, of course, or not, cannot say. I am a little doubtful. There was an elegant entertainment provided for him at Faneuil Hall, and after a number of toasts gave by him, in which the prosperity of the town of Boston was included, he gave Governor Hutchinson, which received by General Hiss. Such is the detestation in which that tool of tyrants is held among us. The damned arch-traitor, as he is called, is very much chagrined at being superseded and it's only last Thursday when he gave orders for repairs to his house in town and country, and upon the workman's suggestion that he would be succeeded soon, he said it was like many other reports that prevailed, for that he had all the satisfaction he could wish for or expect from home, and every part of his conduct was entirely approved of and left to his option whether to enjoy the government or to go to England. But now a guilty conscience has induced him to take refuge at the castle. It is reported here that your government, as well as New York, is to be changed and removed, and one to Burlington and the other to Amboy, with requisitions made upon both, and more particularly upon Rhode Island. Well, remember the governor was driven out of Boston, <clears throat> and Gage is taking his place. Hutchinson did not feel safe any longer in Boston, and... Uh, and uh, William's, uh, I mean, Andrew's uh, stories go on. I want to read you, I want to read you one real quickly here, though, about the, about marksmanship, because he is, he mentioned this very, very plainly. All right. It's common for the soldiers, he's speaking about British soldiers, it's common for the soldiers to fire at a target fixed in the stream at the bottom of the common. A countryman stood by a few days ago and laughed very heartily at a whole regiment's firing and not one being able to hit it. The officer observed him and asked why he laughed. Perhaps you'll be affronted if I tell you, replied the countryman. No, he would not, he said. Why then, says he, I laugh to see how awkward they fire. Why, I'll be bounced. I hit it ten times running. Ah, will you, replied the officer. Come and try. Soldier, you want to bring five of the best guns and load them for this honest man? Why, you need not bring so many. Let me have any one that comes to hand, replied the other, but I choose to load it myself. He accordingly loaded and asked the officer where he should fire. He replied, to the right. When he pulled the trigger and drove the ball as near the right as possible, the officer was amazed and said he could not do it again as he had only done it by chance. He loaded again and he asked the officer, where shall I fire? To the left. When he fired, he performed as well as before. Come. Once more, said the officer, he reloaded and prepared the third time. Where shall I fire now? 
Into, into the center, replied the officer. The countryman took aim. The ball went as exact in the middle as possible. The officers, as well as the soldiers, stared and thought the devil was in this man. Why, says the countryman, I'll tell you now. I've got a boy at home that will toss up an apple and shoot out all the seeds as it's coming down. The country towns, in general, have chose their own officers and muster for exercise once a week at least, when the parson, as well as the squire, stands in the ranks with a firelock. In particular, at Marblehead, they turn out three or four times a week, when Colonel Lee, as well as the clergymen there, are not ashamed to appear in the ranks to be taught the manual of exercise in particular. One more anecdote, and I'll close this there in day. When the 59th Regiment came from Salem and were drawn up on each side of the neck, a remarkable tall countryman, near eight feet high, strutted between them at the head of his wagon, looking very sly and contemptuously on one side and the other, which attracted the notice of the whole regiment. Aye, aye, says he, you don't know what boys we have in this country. I am near nine feet high and one of the smallest among them which caused much merriment to the spectators, as well as surprise to the soldiers. Indeed, though, were I to tell you of all the jokes and witticisms of the country the country people, I would have little else to do. All right, and this was uh, in October of 1734. Anyway, what did that tell you? He had, uh, he had the whole regiment, Firing at a target that was uh, set at the bottom of the common in a stream, and none of them hit it. And the officer was telling the guy, the countryman, he said, Well, you know, nobody can hit that. And the countryman hit it every time. And it just gives you a little bit uh, a little bit of the explanation. You know, I've told you guys before when we talked about this, every time the, uh, every time the, the colonists and the uh, British regulars met head to head. They uh, and uh, on equal terms, the colonists came away with the day. It was decided by the marksmanship. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to real quickly read you about uh, about the first Congress debating. <clears throat> there are 55 delegates that were sent to the. Uh, the first Continental Congress, and they met in Philadelphia, and this was in uh, uh, September of 1774. And what this did was, it, with them all getting together and meeting, it set in force the motions which, which eventually brought about American independence. This was September of 1774. It was still... Uh, uh, Almost uh, almost eight months away from April nineteenth, but in September they had the first Continental Congress that was meeting, and as it and they they began figuring out how to rule themselves. Uh, Doctor Johnson called them the zealots of anarchy and the the dictators of sedition. Uh, Lord Chatham described the body as. Uh, the most honorable assembly of statesmen since those of ancient Greeks and Romans in the most virtuous times. But actually the Congress was uh, 
they were a distinguished group of men, and most of them had been had been long associated with the resistance uh, of the of the of the new policies that, that started back in 1764. Uh, Massachusetts had sent Adams and uh, Bowdoin. Connecticut sent uh, Roger Sherman. In New York, there was John Jay and Philip Livingston. New Jersey sent uh, Livingston and William. Pennsylvania's uh, delegates were uh, Joseph Galloway. And Galloway eventually went over to the Loyalist side. And John Dickinson, uh, who was kind of the, I'd say, the writer of the revolution. From Delaware, there was Caesar Rodney. Uh, from Maryland, Samuel Chase. South Carolina had uh, uh, the two Rutledges and Christopher Gadsden. The Virginia delegation was uh, was really like the the they were the biggest uh, names of all. There was uh, George Washington, uh, Richard Henry Lee, Peyton Randolph, Richard Bland, Edmund Pendleton, and Patrick Henry Randolph from uh, uh, Virginia was. Uh, chosen to be the president of Congress. Now, uh, John Adams wrote about the, the folks here in the Congress as uh, there are fortunes, abilities, learning, eloquence, acuteness equal to any I've, I ever met with my life. And uh, And we'll continue on with this this next week with the road into it because we're gonna we're going to uh end up so that uh, by the April uh twenty first, twenty second that weekend that we'll have crossed uh, we'll already we will discuss the uh the Thursday prior to that. We'll discuss the uh uh the events of April nineteenth. All right, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening tonight, and uh, and remember that we will we will be here next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. And if you guys have uh, if you have some uh, some guests that you would like to to see on the show, be sure and uh, be sure and shoot me a note. We'll see if we can get them on. Uh, until next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central, uh, take care. May God bless and keep uh, each and every one of you close to his heart. And we'll see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central, uh, here at this same uh, location.
Just how free. 